Father, we uh, bow before you this day and worship you as our Father. Thank you for the, the opportunity to sing with uh, the, the worship team and, and to engage our hearts and to get our minds focused on you. We would pray, Lord, for those um, who are part of our family that are in Mexico today. We ask for their spiritual protection, first of all. And then we pray for their physical protection as well. We pray that you might use them there to, to minister to the needs of the people. We pray, Father, um, for members of our church family that are going through difficult times right now, whether it be uh, emotionally or physically. And, and Lord, we uphold them in prayer and ask that you might accomplish your will and purpose in their lives. And we pray for us that as we humble ourselves before your word, that we might hear you speak. We would ask, Lord, that our hearts might be cleansed so that we might be able to hear you better. And we ask that through the, the power of your word and through the power of your spirit, we might put into practice that which you tell us to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. He was tall, he was athletic, he was rather handsome in appearance, not a George Clooney by any means, but, but certainly he was above average in looks. He was hardworking. Boy, was he hardworking. Full-time, full-speed, NBA executive, the youngest general manager in professional sports at the age of 32, financially secure, obviously. And he was eloquent. He was a sought-after motivational speaker. He spoke about 300 times a year. He even wrote a book about public speaking. And he was a committed Christian. He spoke of his love for Jesus Christ wherever he went. In fact, one time he was even invited to speak at a Billy Graham crusade. He spent every morning, without exception, reading and meditating upon the Word of God. And he was single. He had never been married, didn't date too much. Others constantly tried to set him up with girls that they thought would be right for him. But he was content in being single and pouring his life into his work and into his love for the Savior. But then one day, one day, up again. I'm going to continue. Well, Caleb operates on the machine. But one day, Prince Charming met, met Cinderella. Uh, she came from a wonderful Christian home. Her whole life was centered around Jesus Christ, and then her family, and then her church. 
She was an accomplished singer. She was an accomplished violinist. She had been in beauty contests. She had class. She had poise. She had dignity. And with all of that, she had this genuine humility about herself. Though she had been a beauty queen, her life goal was to be a wife and a mother. Currently, she was an elementary school teacher. Well, Prince Charming and Cinderella got married. 1,200 people attended their wedding ceremony. As a new wife, she had to learn to adjust to her husband's schedule. As an NBA executive, he was at his office often until late at night. On Saturdays, he would watch NBA games on television because part of his job as an NBA executive was to know what was going on with the other teams. But then every Sunday, time was spent in the church because they felt that that was a priority of their family. And they attended one of the finest churches in the country and they had one of the finest pastors in the country as well. She had married the man that she really wanted to marry. But after a while, it seemed as though his work always came first. But she understood, you know, he had a high-pressure job in the high-pressure business of professional sports, and there was little margin for error there. And there was a demand for immediate results, so she understood the pressure of his occupation. But he gave her as much freedom as, as possible. She was in charge of the house. She was in charge of the furnishings. She was in charge of the checkbook. He even let her quit her teaching job so she could be a stay-at-home wife. And she had much to be thankful for, and she was thankful. Well, during the next three years, they moved to two different cities for different job opportunities. And in those three years, two more boys entered their family. They had two sons born to them. But then, their communication seemed to break down. She'd get frustrated with him. She was frustrated what he did do and what he failed to do. But instead of talking things out, she would just give him the silent treatment. When he would come home and ask, well, what is wrong? She'd say, you should know. But he didn't know. And he tried to talk with her. She, he tried to get her to open up, but she just seemed to clam up even more. And she'd go off on her own and she'd think to herself, how in the world could he not know what's wrong? And he would try to solve the problem like he tried to solve a problem at work. Cold, clinical, 
business-like, professionally, unemotionally. But when she wouldn't talk and open up, he'd just walk away and say, well, live and let live. Or he'd make some sarcastic remark. Or he'd say, I'll try to do better. And he wanted to do better. Not because he wanted to be a better husband, but because he didn't want to come home to the hassle at work, after work every night. And that was the end of the communication. We'll back up a little. Prince Charming and Cinderella. Two little boys added to their family. Communication breakdown. They even stopped talking to one another. Problem not solved. And she started to give hints to him. Like, you know, we never do anything together unless it's something that you want to do. Or, you know, you, you really don't talk to me. You never act as if my words are important. We never have alone time anymore. You never hold my hand. You're really home, it seems. We never get away as a family. But you, you don't care about this marriage as much as you should. I don't want things. I just want you. But don't give me the crumbs of your life. You've never really given me you. And his first reaction was to argue. And then he tried to patch up the hurt feelings by getting flowers, bringing home a gift, or holding her hand and say, okay, I'm listening now, talk. But she'd say, you don't get it. It's not just that. It's not just that I want to talk. I want you to talk to me like you did when we were dating. I want you to be unhurried. I want your attentive listening. I want your genuine interest. I want you to tell me about your plans and your goals and your dreams. I want you to tell me about your day. I want you to share your life with me. I want you just, just to sit with me. Just to be with me. But I'm only getting the leftovers of your life. To which he would say, but that's not my personality. I'm a doer. I'm active. I need to be moving. I need to be accomplishing something that means something. Oops. Wrong thing to say. She'd say, but being with me accomplishes something. And being with me does mean something. It means something to me. Am I right, ladies? 
See, basically, she didn't feel valued by her husband. And her feelings were justified. But he tried to do better. He really did. He tried to give his wife more undivided attention. Wasn't much. Not with his schedule. But he appreciated it. And he did his best with the situation in which he found himself. And so she came to accept the fact that she was never, ever going to be high on his priority list. And they both knew it. So she just needed to be grateful for what she did have and for the time that he did give her. But then after a while, she felt herself struggling again. And she'd get depressed. She felt alone. Her husband just wanted peace, not war. And so if he came home and he had to hear his wife complaining about something that he did, he had the ability to divorce himself from the situation and say something like, well, we'll talk about it later. But that didn't solve the problem. He would hope that maybe by saying that, the problem would just blow away and it wouldn't come up again. That maybe she'd just get over it, but she didn't get over it. Because the root problem was never addressed. The problem was never solved. He being a man, had the ability to block it out and move on. She didn't. But he kept promising to turn over a new leaf and she kept believing him and being disappointed. And the thing is, is that he felt they had a good marriage. Sure, his wife would do the silent thing and, and she would pout. But then, he tried to get her out of the dumps, and he was happy with that. She wasn't happy with that. She knew that he wasn't living for her. He was living for basketball, and business, and exercise, and fitness. Well, a third child came along, three and five years. This time it was a beautiful girl. And mom, she was exhausted. And her husband would come home after his NBA executive job and he'd tell his wife that, that he loved her. Even when he was, he was at work, he'd check in now and then. He was making an effort, but she was pretty much limited to the house. While well, his job and his speaking engagements took him all over the country. And while he was telling other people, you know, get into your Bible, get to know Christ, live for the glory of God. And while he did study the scriptures every day, and by this time he was into the habit of memorizing a scripture a day. And while he was devoted to his job and was excellent in it, being the executive of one of the most successful 
NBA franchises in America, she knew something's missing. Something's missing in his life. Something's missing in my life. Something's missing in our marriage. And she said, maybe I'm all wrong. But it seems to me that winning the world for Christ but losing your own family don't seem to go together. Shouldn't there have been a better balance? Well, he was pouring his life into his work and into his ministry. And so when he came home from his speaking engagements, he, he didn't want another job. And she felt guilty. Guilty for asking him of his time and his attention. And again, he thought they had a perfect marriage. And when his wife would gently say, but we don't have a perfect marriage, he would ask, well, what is it you want me to do? And she'd tell him again, I just want us to do things together. I just want you to spend time with me. And he promised to do better and to turn over a new leaf. And finally she said, listen, I have a yard full of new leaves, but they're turning old and yellow. And she began to think that just, this was just the way life was supposed to be. She didn't go to many of his NBA games, but when she did go, she went alone. She sat alone while he was with the other executives in the press box. But at least she could see him at halftime and she could see him after the game. And sometimes she would even go with him to his speaking engagements at churches or at conventions and he would ask her to, to sing right before he spoke. But something deep down inside her said that he wanted her at the NBA games and he wanted her at her speaking engagements, at his speaking engagements, to show off his trophy wife. Not because he wanted to be with her. But she could be wrong. She had no right really to judge his motives. Only God can truly judge the motives of the heart. But things continued to get worse at least from her vantage point. And the silent treatment now turned into shouting matches. Staying at home as a, as a wife and as a mother turned into days at a recording studio where she cut a record or shopping until the stores closed at night or antiquing or getting out, going out with the ladies, getting home in the wee hours of the morning, he was letting her do her own thing. I mean, she wanted him to care, but he didn't care. She wanted him to notice. Well, he noticed, but it was all right with him. She was getting emotional strokes outside the home. He saw that. And so he thought that was a good thing. And people were listening to her. And people were looking at her when she spoke. And people seemed to genuinely care for her. 
and she liked it. After one shouting performance with her husband passively listening, she decided there wasn't going to be any more screaming. He wasn't going to change. She couldn't beg or plead or pray or badger or holler or humiliate him into changing. So she was just going to accept him the way he was. She wasn't going to like it. But she was going to live the way a person lives with a handicap. You make the best of it. No longer pray for a miracle. He was a part-time husband, really. I mean, he lived, and he slept, and he ate at home. He had all the privileges of a married man while leading the life of a bachelor. And his job and his ministry and his, his body were top priorities. And his house and his wife and his kids were his refuge. As long as he didn't have to put out emotionally. She knew she didn't have him. And that's all she wanted. And to her, that was worse than having nothing at all. And then after 10 years of marriage, he came home from work one evening, and his wife was literally unable to talk. She was in a total fog. It was like he was talking to a dead person. She was totally unresponsive. She didn't want to eat. She didn't want to do anything. She didn't need anything. It was as if she didn't care about anything. All the life that was once in her was now snuffed out. The house was a mess. The, the kids were on a rampage. And he had never, ever seen her like this before. No fight, no argument, no words, no tears, no nothing. No feelings of love. She was expressionless. She was numb. Her emotional tank was at empty. He wondered if she had suffered a nervous breakdown. He wondered if he, he should take her to the hospital. He didn't know if she was clinically depressed. She finally had her husband's attention, but she didn't want it. She didn't care. She had nothing left. Her husband, he thought of a quote that he recently heard at a convention. A woman can hang in through adversity for a long time, but when she comes to the end of her rope, she dies just as suddenly. And he began to pray. At least he had enough wisdom to do that. Again, he began to pray and say, Lord, I don't know what to do. But Lord, you do in me whatever you have to do. 
I've got a crisis here. And it's a crisis that obviously I have, I have caused. So crush me, show me, help me. What in the world do I do? Show me what I've done so I can change it. And just then, he had a God encounter. No, he didn't have a, a vision like Isaiah had. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and there was no audible voice like Samuel had when he was in the tabernacle. But there is this clear realization, this awakening, this awareness that his years of commitment to Bible reading and meditation and, and memorization of God's Word and his years of hard work and excellence in the world of professional sports and his years of self-discipline, his regimen of his exercise routine every day to be healthy and strong, and his years of speaking across the country, giving his testimony about his faith in Jesus Christ, and even his invitations to his wife to, to sing before he addressed crowds. He came to the realization and awareness that everything he had done up until that time was done for himself. It was done to make him look good. It was done to make him feel good. That though in the eyes of men he was a roaring success, in the eyes of God he had been self-centered and self-deceived. God in His glory, God in His honor, God in His pleasure, really wasn't ever His motive. He had been on a success trip that even the good things that he thought he was doing in the eyes of God were self-motivated and self-gratifying. His success from everybody's view looked like obedience. But it wasn't. It wasn't done out of love for God. It wasn't done out of love for people. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, that is, if I have the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues that no man has ever had, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. I'm just making noise. And if I had the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I had the spiritual gift of prophecy more than any man has had before, and I can understand all mysteries and all prophecies and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, if I have the spiritual gift of faith that no man has ever had before, but I have not love, 
I am, what's the next word? Nothing. And this NBA executive, this Christian man, came to the realization that all these years, he had been self-deceived. He had not recognized it. But in reality, he was not living for God. He was living for himself, for his reputation, for his priorities. And his wife, she just wanted him to love her. That's all. She just wanted him to give her some attention, to value her, to cherish her, to protect her. He never set out to be an insensitive, uncaring husband. But unknowingly, that's exactly what he had become. And now, bowed before God, he was absolutely silent. There was nothing he could say. God had exposed his heart. There was no rebuttal. There was no excuse. There was no de denial. Quoting the words of Saul in the Old Testament, is all he could think of was the words, I have played the fool. He knew God could forgive him. Because he knew that God always forgives a truly repentant heart, and he was repentant. And he understood that there were things that his wife could have done to prevent her from going into that spiral of depression. But he also understood that he was responsible for his actions. He was not responsible for her. She had to live her life responsible before God. He understood that. But he also understood that there were directives that God had given to him in his life and he needed to clean up his act as a Christian, as a husband, and as a father. His job was to obey God no matter what. That was his responsibility. And he wasn't guilty of adultery. He wasn't guilty of abuse. He wasn't guilty of lying. He wasn't guilty of covetousness. But he was guilty of the root sin of all sins. He was guilty of pride. And he wasn't even aware of it. So how could he win his wife back? Well, that night, his wife went to bed and he couldn't sleep. And so he got up. He had more than 3,000 books in his library, and he thought, I'm going to go to my library, and I'm going to look for a book that's going to help me, that's going to counsel me to be a better husband and to be a better father. And so he went through his shelves of books, and he looked, and he looked, and he looked, and he found nothing. He found commentaries, he found books on Bible doctrine, but he had nothing in his library to help him be a better husband. 
And he thought, well, maybe, maybe if I look into my wife's library. And so he went to her section of books, and he looked through her shelves, and there were dozens of books on marriage and family. Most of them on how to be a, a better wife to your husband. And he went to those books, and there's nothing there that just met his need. So he went back to the bedroom and tiptoed in and he turned on the light next to his bed and sat on the bed trying not to wake her up. And he glanced over at her bedstand. And there was a book there. Looked like it had been there a long time. Looked like it had been unread. But the the jacket of the book said, How to Fall in Love, How to Stay in Love, How to Rekindle Your Love. There's a book by Dr. Ed Wheat called Love Life for Every Married Couple. And he started reading it. That night, all night, every page. And every page he turned, it just brought deeper conviction to his heart. Because he saw himself on every page of that book. He was embarrassed as he read about husbands, and I quote, who got marriage out of the way as a customary obligation and then got back to the business of running their lives. And he said to himself, that was me. And as he was read, he was given hope that that maybe by the grace of God his marriage could be resuscitated. That love could be rekindled. That, that a dead marriage can be resurrected if biblical principles are put into play. He understood it takes two people to make a Christian home. Two people to make a Christian marriage. But it was possible to have a Christian home with the wisdom and the grace of God. Dr. Wheat said in this book, it wouldn't happen in a day, it wouldn't happen in a week, it wouldn't happen in a month, it may not happen in a year. But if both husband and wife had put biblical principles into play, God can mend a broken home. Well, in the book, Dr. Ed Wheat laid down four biblical principles to, to restore, rekindle, and re re reinvigorate a broken marriage. And I'd like to share those with you this morning. They're summarized by the acrostic BEST. B-E-S-T. B stood for blessing. Um... When Patty and I lived in downtown Buttermilk, Kansas, population 11, we were expecting a, a boy, our fifth child. Now back then, you didn't know if you were going to get a boy or a girl. They didn't tell you that. But we were expecting a child. And if, if it was a boy, it was, his name was going to be Joshua. And if it was a girl, 
I chose the name Blessing. Blessing Barons. And everybody in the church was praying that we would have a boy. <laughs> I still like the name. Blessing. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and He will grant you His blessing. And so the first thing you want to do is, this, is to bless your wife. You bless your wife when you pray for her. You bless your wife when you pray with her, asking God to rest His favor upon her. To fill your wife with his goodness and his peace and his joy. For emotional protection. For her spiritual growth. For those things that are on her heart. You bless your wife through your prayers. And you bless your wife when you verbally express your gratefulness for all that she has done for you. For your family. For others. Gratefulness is making known to God and others in what ways they have benefited my life. And so you let your wife know throughout the day the way that she has blessed you and the way that she has blessed others. And you bless your wife when you do kind things for her. When you do things that you know will make her happy. It doesn't matter if it's inconvenient for you doesn't matter if it's something hard for you to do. That's irrelevant. It isn't about you. It's about her. And so you bless her. You bless her when you pray for her. You bless her when you express gratefulness to her. You bless her when you do those simple, perceptive, kind things that bring joy to her life. Bless her. Blessing. And then... Dr. Wheat said edifying. The word edifying is a word that simply means to, to support, to, to, to build up. In other words, don't tear her down with cutting criticism, with slanderous accusations, with harsh words. No, you build her up with praise and encouragement and comfort. Most wives have a little self-image problem. They often um, put themselves down. They often feel emotionally insecure. They often feel inadequate. Now, they, they aren't inadequate, but they often feel that way. And wives often struggle with their thoughts in this area. Now, don't add to their struggles. Get into the habit of edifying them, building them up, which goes beyond expressing gratefulness. This now adds words of encouragement. You know, kind of being the cheerleader at home for your wife. First Thessalonians 5.11 says, Encourage each other and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Or Ephesians 4.29 says, Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be helpful and good 
so that your words will be an encouragement to those who listen to them. And so you edify her by encouraging her. Be careful what you say. And build her up, edify her by your actions, by the decisions that you make. May they be wise decisions. May they be godly decisions. Live a consistent, day-by-day Christian life. And by making those God-honoring choices, you build her up. You edify her. You edify her by coming to church. You edify her by putting Jesus Christ first in your week and first in your life. That strengthens her faith because by doing so, she knows she's not in this Christian race alone. You're in it together. You're marriage partners. And then Dr. Wheat said, S stands for sharing. An opening verse of the Bible says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and, and cleaves to his wife, unites to his wife, and they become one. And you become one in part by, by sharing your time, by doing common activities, by having some common interests. Now look, that doesn't mean you have to do everything together. Patty has interests. I am not good at crocheting. I mean, that's just a fact. <laughs> Patty loves to crochet. Patty loves working in the flower bed. I can't tell a dandelion from a lily. It's just not. But there are things that we can do together, that we share together. This means that you make it a priority of your life of spending time with your wife and doing things that she enjoys. Sharing also involves conversing during the day, sharing your life, sharing your thoughts, taking unhurried time to listen. She should never get the impression that she's last on your list. She should never get the idea that, that she is not important to you. No, you leave your father and mother and you cleave into your wife and then you weave your lives together. And if you don't do that, she'll feel like she's nothing more than an unpaid housemaid. And that is not what she is. And so blessing, edifying, and sharing. One more to go. But before we move on, did you notice that blessing, edifying, and sharing in part has to do with communication? Dr. Willard Harley researched the basic needs of a wife and he discovered that one of the major needs of a wife was that she expected her husband to spend time talking with her so that they would not grow apart. He won her heart by exchanging conversation. 
and that from her vantage point he would keep the romance alive by giving her time to talk. In other words, communication is important to a, a successful marriage. One couple's marriage almost disintegrated because of a lack of communication. It was because of Aunt Emma. For seven years, she lived with them. Always crabby, always crotchety, always demanding. And eventually, Aunt Emma passed away. And much of the household tension went with her. And on the way back from the graveside service at the cemetery, the, the husband confessed to his wife, he says, Honey, if I didn't love you, I don't think I could have put up with Aunt Emma being in the house all those years. And his wife looked at him and said, My Aunt Emma? I thought she was your Aunt Emma. <laughs> the importance of good communication. Wives appreciate communication because to them it creates connection. Guys generally don't think that way. <coughs> to us, connection is doing things together. Hunting, fishing, anything but talking. But that's not the way God has, has made a wife. She enjoys communication. That brings connection. That helps her feel close to Him. And so, husbands need to communicate in kindness, in patience, in tactfulness, in godly wisdom. Husband and wife weren't getting along very well. Their communication just stopped. And it was a silent treatment on both ends. But one night, the husband wanted to make sure that he woke up at 5 o'clock a.m. the next morning because he had a very, very important business meeting that he had to attend. It was with a brand new client. And he had to be there early, so he needed her to make sure that she woke him up at 5 o'clock a.m. if he didn't wake up when the alarm went off. But he didn't want to be the first to talk. You know, men, pride wrapped in skin. And so he decided in order not to be the first one to break the ice, not to be the first one to talk, he'd write a note and he'd set it on her side of the bed so that when she came to bed, she could see it. And the note read, don't let me sleep beyond five o'clock in case I don't hear the alarm. Well, the next morning the husband woke up and it was eight o'clock. He had missed his meeting. He looked at his wife's side of the bed and she was gone. But there was a note next to the pillow that said, it's five o'clock, it's time to get up. <laughs> Communication is important to a wife. So 
So husbands, don't speak rashly. Don't ever embarrass your wife publicly. By the way, that's a two-way street. Never say never or always. Never resort to name-calling. Never give historical meaning. Don't dredge up the past. Never attempt to, ar to out-argue. Don't be condescending. Never attack with you statements. If you did this, if you did that. Never begin a, a serious discussion if you're overly tired. Never interrupt your marriage partner. Let them finish their sentence, please. The Bible says everyone enjoys a fitting reply. It's a wonderful thing to say the right thing at the right time. And the heart of the godly thinks carefully before speaking. The mouth of the wicked overflows with evil words. So communication is important in blessing, in edifying, and in sharing. And that brings us to touching. Dr. Wheat, in his book, uh, Love Life for Every Married Couple, finished his counsel with these words. Even if you apply every other principle I have given you in this book, it will be of little avail unless you learn to touch each other often and joyfully in non-sexual ways. Physical contact is absolutely essential. Now I know that's true because my wife agrees with that. A tender touch tells your wife that you care for her. It gives her emotional security. Now, husbands, you may not think that way. It doesn't matter. You need to learn to think that way. Hold her hand. Sit next to her. A gentle kiss. Not, not a hint for intimacy, just a reminder of committed love. And that's best. B-E-S-T. 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 B -E 